Stormtroopers made other violent gestures. In 1933, together with sympathetic students, they organized public burnings of unsuitable books, particularly those by Jewish authors. Röhm wanted his stormtroopers integrated into the regular German army. The army was horrified. The SA lehnte man ab, und zwar wegen ihres Benehmens, wie sie auftraten, wie sie waren. Also die SA wurde allmählich, wie sie war zum Schluss, also man kann schon beinahe sagen, verhasst bei den meisten Soldaten auch. Dazu, zu dieser Ablehnung der SA, so würde ich mal sagen, kam, dass immer deutlicher wurde, nicht nur in der Armee, dass Röhm, also der oberste Chef der SA, danach strebte, die Reichswehr in irgendeiner Form zu vereinnahmen. Er strebte auf den Reichswehrminister hin. Und er wollte daraus seine Armee bilden. Hitler instinctively sympathized with the revolutionary zeal of Röhm and his stormtroopers. But by the summer of 1934, he knew that their power had to be curbed, and not just curbed to please the army. Röhm had made a more dangerous enemy than the army leadership. Heinrich Himmler, ambitious for power himself and still technically working to Röhm in the Nazi hierarchy, plotted his downfall. He concocted a story that Röhm was plotting a coup, and Hitler believed him. On June the 30th, 1934, when Röhm was on holiday in Bavaria, he was arrested and taken to a nearby prison. Two days later, he was shot. The armed forces were grateful, glad to see Röhm dead and the power of the stormtroopers moderated. To show their gratitude, they volunteered to swear an oath of allegiance to Hitler personally. The man who, now on President Hindenburg's death, was not just Germany's chancellor, but also her head of state. Somebody was reading and we had to lift our arm and, and at the very end say, uh, that's my oath. And how seriously did you and your colleagues take this oath? Very serious. I mean, a soldier... Uh, this accompanied my whole life till the very end. I mean, uh, oath is oath. There's no, no doubt that I, I can't break the oath or otherwise I might commit suicide if I plan something else. But this, this, this is uh, very serious, the oath for a soldier. Welcome back. David Penn here. Another episode of the Professor Penn Podcast. We started out with a little historical interlude. Before we comment on it, I want to thank Free People Radio for hosting this podcast. Because we're the truth media. Got two kinds of media in this country. State media and truth media. You know, we've been calling the mainstream media, legacy media. No, it's state media. And how do we know that? If you review the media of the day, they all say the same thing. They got a script. They must be the state media. 
Where we, on the other hand, we're trying to get to a closer version of the truth. We're researchers. We're students of the truth, lovers of the truth, the truth media. And we're lovers of the patriot economy, those businesses and people that support the movement. Like our sponsor, TireGet.com, 14,000 different kinds of tires in stock, all your tire needs, and you fund the movement, a win-win. PrecinctStrategy.com, a tutorial on how to get in the game of politics. We say it every time because nothing could be more important. Look at the events of the weekend. Oh, my goodness. We started out with a little um, history. Ernst Rome. Ernst Rome was a German uh, leader of the Nazi movement. His power at one time rivaled that of Adolf Hitler. Military leader, he led the Brown Shirts, kind of a paramilitary organization. Well, not kind of. They were a paramilitary organization, and they were more responsible than any other group for Adolf Hitler, uh, you know, becoming a dictator of Germany. How did they do it? They took the streets, kind of like Antifa. Not kind of like, exactly like. In other words, we've been down these roads before. We don't have to look at all these events and be mesmerized and go, hey, what's happening here? We just need to look back in history. We might get some insight. Unlike one of the three stooges, Mr. History doesn't matter. That's because he wants free reign to do whatever he wants to do. But if those of us that care about life, care about the people, care about the well-being of the American people, we look back at history and we find a character like Ernst Röhm. And what was going on? He got too powerful as a military leader at a time of great change. And he had to get taken out. And he was. Let's bookmark that and come back to it. Let's not forget about Ernst Röhm. We're going to get back to it. We're going to have a long drum roll today because there are some things I've been promising, and I want to get to them. But I want to say before we get there, nothing could be more important than this Russian drama this past weekend. I hope you all know about it. But we're coming back there. But I'm going to make good on my my promise, and we're going to start out by uh, talking about prayer today. Prayer. Let me clear my throat and have a little drink of water, because when we pray, you know, it's kind of a special deal. I don't always feel that I'm uh, capable of praying, but that's me getting down on myself. It really doesn't matter what I've done. I can pray, no matter where I'm at. I'm tired out from this weekend. I spent this whole weekend thinking about this drama in Russia. And boy, I want to get to it. But you know, we talked about two things we left off on. We want to talk about prayer, and we want to get back to where we went off the road, the Warren Commission. Can't get to the Warren Commission today. Next time, too much going on. But prayer, why is prayer so important? Because it's all we got. Let's take a look around us. Look around us. Just look. As you go about your business, as I go about my business, I get up in the morning, I say hello to my audience. They say hello back. It seems like a normal day. Sun is shining, the sky is blue. It's normal, right? Ha ha. You know it's not normal. You know it. You want it to be normal. You got up today, brushed your teeth, took a shower, you're on your way to work, whatever. It's like a normal day, right? But inside us, we know. 
there's this growing, nagging feeling that things are not normal. In fact, they're so far from normal that, uh, you know, we got a lot of, uh, we got a lot of people that are going to start folding up. Mental illness, suicide. I mean, the, the stresses on people when they recognize that the world is shifting underneath their feet, that they're confronted by change, technological change, political change. Uh, it's just an unprecedented period of change in, in world history. And people have to go, whoa, I can't deal with this. They feel overwhelmed. They resort to drugs and alcohol, dopamine in their Instagram feed, whatever it is, escapism. Because if you really stay present with this, ooh, that takes a lot of courage, right? Because this is not fun. So when people have um, challenges, let's just call them, well, they're usually of an emotional or physical nature. Because you know when people want to pray? People want to pray when shit's not going good, which is um, right off the bat the wrong way to go about it. Uh, there's a way to pray, and uh, I want to talk to the people out there that are suffering. And I can speak to you as a sufferer. Let me say it again. If you're out there and you're suffering, I can speak to you and share with you as a, a sufferer. Uh, there's a, an old saying in China, two people with the same disease have a lot to talk about. And I got a lot to talk about because I've suffered a lot, really a lot, all kinds of different uh, life-threatening issues in my life and grew up. And, I, you know, people that watch the podcast know oh, a lot of my family was killed in the Ukraine by Ukrainian Nazis, not German Nazis. I like to say it. It makes me feel good, kind of like getting something off my chest. But the idea of how we pray, well, let's just face the facts. We're living in a world where people don't pray. Huh. They don't believe in God. Why do we know this? Look around. It's quite evident that people don't believe in God. That seems to be the prevailing zeitgeist of our time. People have, believed, have given up in their belief in God. And even if they believe in God, they hedge. They really don't want to pray. Because you know what? If it doesn't work out, they take it personal. Like if I ask God for something, oh, God, please make me rich. And then it doesn't work out. Hey, you know, I kind of hedge back. I say, well, I really didn't pray. I really didn't believe. Then I don't have to feel somehow that God doesn't love me. So I don't really give over to it. And that's the key to this whole pray thing. Give over. Very difficult for the Western mind to do. Because after all, we're geniuses, aren't we? We're geniuses. We have human intellect. Look at all this we've created. Nuclear weapons, biological weapons, industrialized food, dopamine highs on smartphones, supercomputing, artificial intelligence, robots. Hey, we've created a paradise, haven't we? <laughs> paradise. So it's very difficult for people to pray. And I'm going to read something because this is the, the cornerstone of your prayer. Because if you're in a spot that there seems to be no solution, it's an opportunity to actually get the keys to the kingdom. It's interesting, isn't it? 
you know, your worst, most horrible nightmare has come upon us. Or you. I mean, I say because, you know, we're living in a very tricky time. And what I'm going to advance here is the most powerful weapon that we have as the American people, the free people of America, is our well-being. Enhance our well-being through prayer. Be strong. Enhance our well-being through prayer. That's what we're going to start to do here. People are going to say, oh, you're getting a little weird, Professor Penn. No. I'm pulling out the strongest tool in the tool belt. And I'm saying at a time like this, we need to pray. And I know that many of us are going to church or synagogue or the mosque, and we pray there, and that's great. Now, what about the other 75% of the people that don't pray? And how about the 25% of the people that are praying that aren't quite sure how to do it? I think we need to cut touch on it. And, you know, someone's going to say, well, what, what qualifies you? You're not a, like the guy in the live chat from uh, Please Call Me Crazy. You're not really a professor. Hey, that's good that I'm not really a professor because that means I'm not on the payroll. I can actually profess with independent and critical thinking because my paycheck doesn't depend on me professing the state line, the party line. It's a little bit like praying. You know, um, praying, that's a very personal thing. But there is a science to it. There is a science to it. And if I had to say one thing, the reason it doesn't work for people is they don't give over. But if you're in a spot that you're just basically screwed, that's the building blocks of getting into the kingdom of heaven. And let me tell you how it starts. I'll read it to you. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now, how many of you are doing that? This is about finding God. Are you knocking on God's door? You know, I remember when I was a young man. Young. Maybe from the time I was 13, 14 years old. I was only interested in this issue. Knock, knock, knock. Pound on that door. Let me in. Let me in. Please let me in. Please answer me. I had that for 10 years. No, longer than that. 15 before I was finally admitted to the school. You got to ask to get in. What do you think? Who do we think we are? No, I realize there are some great prophets and God just shows up. But for most of us, we got to ask for an audience. It's the king after all. You know, what do you expect? He's busy. He's just going to show up in your front yard? No, it could happen. And if it does, pay attention. Otherwise, for the rest of us, us mortals, our regular, you know, regular people, we have to have an abiding and burning desire to figure these issues out. It's not going to happen otherwise. In other words, if you're more interested in playing with your smartphone, you're probably not going to get there. And that might have something to do with why everybody has shorts on their smartphone, because it's quite distracting. Look at all the distractions. Now, if you were living in, say, 1513, and you had a life expectancy of, say, 23 years old, things would be a little bit more intense. Like if you watched your mother and father die in the house, your brothers and sisters died. You know your mother and father had 11 kids. Eight of them died from childhood disease. You know, there'd be a lot more, a lot more focus on the other world because people were going there all the time, right in front of your eyes. But now we house all that death 
and all that departure and warehouses called hospice and old folks' home and hospital. We're not there when people leave unless we seek it out. When you seek it out, when you see it, changes everything. Leads to a little post-traumatic stress disorder, which is another reason to pray. I'm going to read this again. Ask, and it will be given to you. You must ask. First, you must ask. Seek, and you will find. First, you must seek. Are you a seeker of truth? Are you immersed in the Word? Are you studied? Are you reading philosophy? Have you read all the Western philosophy going back to the Enlightenment? Have you read Plato? Have you read what everybody commented on these things? Are you immersed in the thought around these issues of prayer? The one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. But you still must knock. That's the first step. you got to be looking for God. You know, God doesn't need me to find him. He doesn't need me. I need to find God. And I was there for many years. That's where I started out. And then God actually told us how to pray. They asked him, how do you pray? And he said, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. All that saying is, I am acknowledging that whatever happens is God's will, not man's will. Oh, that's a tough step to take. In other words, whatever happens to me is okay. That kind of gets, you know, that kind of gets the resentment out of it. Oh, you know, I'm not tall enough. Oh, I'm not fast enough. Oh, I got this disease. Oh, woe is me. No, whatever happens to me, because God loves me, he's doing it for me. When you get to that point, the channel starts to open up. Step one, you got to knock. You have to want to establish a relationship. And two, you have to get out of the way. You got to get rid of your resentment. Because here's what it says. Give us each day our daily bread. And that's not about bread. That's about wisdom. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive those who sin against us. What we're saying is we got to first believe in something, that there's something there, or at least believe you're looking for it. Then you have to open your channel. How do you do that? Well, it's kind of a psychological process. You have to forgive other people as you wish to be forgiven. Okay, now the channel's open. Channel's open. You're positing that something's out there. You don't know for sure. But you want to find out. You're pounding on the door. Let me in. And then you're following the rule book. See, there's rules here. There's rules. There's things you have to do. You have to forgive other people so that you can be forgiven. It's just getting the energy right to pray. Because they asked Jesus, how do you pray? This was very Jewish, right? Seems Christian now, but he was speaking as a Jew to Jews. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, you know, you're worshiping this deity, this God, that you know you're knocking on the door. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Hey, you're the boss. Right away, when you make that move, when you give over that not, it's not my human intellect that's in control, but I'm, a, I'm an agent, I'm an instrument of the Lord. And that's why we're saying we got to pray right now, because look at what we're confronting. We need to double down. We need to get some strength, some supernatural strength. So now we've, we want to get that strength. We clear our gears so we can receive it, and then we know what we need to do. 
whatever it is, it doesn't matter what's ailing you. It doesn't matter what it is. Because, you know, you got to know what to pray for. If you're praying for, like, uh, Bentley, it's probably not going to work. I'm just saying. If you're asking for a new Cadillac, it might not be the right prayer. You gotta be, you gotta be vetting out what you ask for. You gotta know what to ask for. But let's say you're asking for the right thing. Like, for example, let's say you have an anxiety disorder, like Professor Penn. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever you wish for when you pray, believe that you have received it, and ye shall have it. I'm gonna read this again. Read it again. Chokes me up because it's so powerful. Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever you wish for when you pray, believe that you have received it, and ye shall have it. Now people are going to say I'm, I'm waxing quite religious. No, this is, a, this is physics right here, okay? Physics. We just haven't turned this into science yet, so it's still in the realm of the religious. But, you know, they're, they're studying this in the physics world. What it's saying is I have an anxiety order, disorder, and I do. I mean, I've had such bad anxiety attacks that I'm paralyzed. And how did I deal with it? I thank God for healing my anxiety as if it's already healed. I say, thank you, Father, for healing my anxiety. Thank you for healing my anxiety. And I just stick with that prayer. Might have to stick with it for 20 years. I don't determine the moment that the prayer is answered. That's not up to me. I just stay in the mode of believing that I've received it. And I'll tell you why. For truly, I tell you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say this to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So what I've done here is lay out, I've laid out, we'll come back to it, the fundamentals of making reality. It's right in the book. I want to divorce it from its religious context just momentarily and say one day this is going to be science, just not today. This is how we interface with God. We knock and we want to know him. We seek him in all of our ways. We learn how to pray. We acknowledge his greatness and that his will is done and that we don't hold on to resentment because that clogs up the system. And then we pray, thanking God for what we've received. We believe we've received it. Whatsoever I wish for when I pray, I believe that I've received it, and I'll have it. And then I work on my faith. And if I can say this over and over to you, and we work on it over and over, and we realize that we have to pray, thank you, Father, for bringing us peace. Thank you for bringing an end to this terrible period in American history. Thank you for restoring our republic and the well-being of the people. Thank you for blessing us with the well-being of the people. And we start getting on this as a community. Now, we're going to talk about it more. I know we're not going to get this in 23 minutes and 38 seconds. But if the American people do this, let me tell you about the Israeli people, that would be the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. You know, they pray, all 12 million of them, maybe there's 15 or 20 now. I don't know the exact number. I'm not counting. But a big percentage of them, 
at least three, four, five million pray every day to be seen uh, positively. They thank God for being seen positively in the eyes of everybody on earth and in God's eyes. They 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 pray for the health, thanking God for the health of the community. They pray to God for thanking. They thank God for the bravery of the Israeli people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. They thank God for the glory. They're always doing this. I mean, in a communal way. You know, people go, how do these, how do this ragtag group survive almost 6,000 years? They know how to pray. And you don't need all of them. You just need a quorum. Just like in politics. You just need enough. So if you want to do something, you're in the movement, you don't know what to do, start believing that we've received health and well-being and peace and stick to it. Don't hatch. We need you to do it. In fact, I'm going to start to do it. It worked for my anxiety. I used to be so afraid. Woo. And I had good reason to be afraid. I was triggered by a whole series of things that happened to me. Some of them were health-related. Some of them were pistol-related. You know, and I ended up with some anxiety, some post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, I'm not saying it can't afflict me again, but my faith is so strong. I accept it as being me. It doesn't slow me down anymore because I believe that I've received health for all my flesh. It's a good place to be. God wants us to live a long time to serve him. Isn't that great? All we have to do is give up our petty pursuits. Think about what we do every day. What are our habits? Our habits become our character, and our character is our destiny. And what a greater destiny could we have? What greater destiny? could you and I have than having a knowledge and awareness of the infinite and serving the people with that knowledge? Hey, you want to beat evil? Be good. You want to defeat these people? Be good. Just that simple. That's where we have to start individually. Now, when we get to that point, we can have some healing, some healing. And a lot of the um, paths to healing are controlled by evil wizards and their minions. Uh, healing. Let's talk a little bit about healing. Let's talk about keywords, and let's make it a little bit political. You know, we had this drama going on here about my uh, Emmer video. I'm coming back to Congressman Emmer today. Before we get to the, I'm putting all the fluff stuff up front before we get to the Russian thing. Stay with me. It's going to get interesting. But we had all this Sturman drang about the uh, Emmer piece that my, my young friend sent out. He's my senior in the party, and he just sent it out, and boy, the fur flew, and we talked about it. And I was watching all the emails and traffic that went around, and Mr. We Don't Need Any More Republicans, one of the three stooges, remember him? You know, we don't do that here, Mr. We don't do that here, Mr. Uh, history doesn't matter, and Mr. We don't need any more Republicans. Mr. We don't need any more Republicans, very derisively, very condescendingly, kind of made fun of me like, uh, you know, I was for default, like I'm a dummy. And let me tell you who's dumb. Mr. We don't need any more Republicans. Let's do it. Let's, let's do a little healing, a little cultural healing here about the concept of default. Because default is a word. And every time we come up on one of these debt ceiling deals, they start screaming the default word. Default. 
default. Oh, like Chicken Little, the sky's going to fall. Default, default. And they say it over and over again because they're, you know, they're brainwashing. Like uh, Mr. History doesn't matter. A brainwashing agent. Well, let me tell you about default, and I'm going to speak about this as a person who is in the capital markets business. I own a company. You know, I'm not sitting around retired. When I get done with the Professor Penn podcast today, I'm getting in the trench with a bayonet, you know, every day, bayonet in my mouth, crawling through the mud trying to survive. It's real interesting. Business is war without bullets, and when you have a, you know, when you have a war with bullets or without bullets, when it's a war for survival, the bullshit goes away real quick, like the word default. Oh, we're going to have a default. Look at Professor Penn. He's an asshole. He wants us to default. That's what Mr. We Don't Need Any Republicans wrote to everybody. Well, I want to clarify the word default. It's a scam. A default, if you have a bank loan, can be very catastrophic. Let's say you have a credit line for $100 million and you're selling uh, clothes, women's clothes, and suddenly your income is less than your outgo, your expenses, and the bank looks at it because you got a bank loan. The bank goes, oh, you're not meeting your covenants. Oh, aren't these words great? You know, the bank has taken the word covenant, which was the relationship between, you know, God and man, the covenant. And they've turned it into a set of covenants between the bank and the borrower, putting the bank in the position of God. See, we have to start to reclaim some of these words. This is not accidental. This is evil. But see, I have a bank loan. I have covenants. Covenants. You know how that affects me as a religious person hearing that? I'll tell you what it does. It pisses me off because the arrogance of the people that believe that I have to live up to their covenants. You know what? I just need to pay the bills. They're not covenants. They're rules. But see, they try to invoke the holiness of the covenant, and that is a violation of thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. For all of those of you out there who think that's about swearing, I do realize there are some passages about, you know, not using, you know, prost language. I get it. But you want to really, really violate a commandment? Call a set of rules covenants. That's who these people are, standing in for God, the bankers. Think about it. They're not covenants. They're not covenants. They're not covenants. They're rules. And sometimes, through no fault of our own, because of conditions in the economy, oh, that'd be like the Fed jacking up the interest rates faster than any time in American history and a collapse of the ocean freight rates, and suddenly everybody's losing money and everybody's violating the rules, not the covenants, the rules. Let's reclaim the word covenant and leave that specifically for the relationship between God and man, Mr. Bankers. There are a set of rules, and when you violate those rules, when you pop one of those rules, you don't meet their conditions because they're giving you conditions. They're giving you money, and they have every right to make conditions. Like if I loan you money, if you came to me, and you might someday say, how is that possible? I don't know. We could end up being friends. You could come to me and say, hey, could I borrow 5000 bucks?" And I'd say, yes, you could, but you have to pay me back. That's a rule. If you don't pay me back, you violated the rules. So the banks have every right, since they're loaning money to the, to the businesses and to the people, to have rules about it. And if you don't live up to those rules, You've broken the rule, and the bank has every right to say, hey, we need to take a look at you. Maybe we need to call our loan because we don't want to lose money, and that's all reasonable to me. 
We're not thieves after all. But what the banks call it is a default. You're in default. You've broken a rule. And that gives them the power to take all your shit away. They can call in the loan and take your assets, which are the collateral for the loan. Mr. We Don't Need Any More Republicans made a big, big deal about Professor Penn is advocating for a default. You know, yes, I am. And I'm going to tell you why. Because default is a scam. And we all need to get this straight the next time we have a, a debt ceiling crisis. A default means that we can't pay. Guess what? The American people can pay. We're not defaulting. We're not going out of business. There's not going to be a, a, an evacuation of America and everybody standing around holding the bill. We're not running out of the restaurant leaving the check on the table. It's not a default. It's a negotiation to get our income and our expenses in balance. And if we have to take a few weeks to do it, that's called slow pay. A default means no pay. So let's get that out of the language. Because every time they use it, oh, the full faith and credit of the United States. Oh, it's going to undermine the United States. Oh, people aren't going to trust us. As compared to what? You know, as compared to what? You're only good or bad by comparison. Okay? Mr. We don't need any more Republicans. Compared to what? You think people are going to give up on the United States of America and put their money into China? You think that's a good People still have the hope that we restore rule of law here because this has been the greatest system ever in America, in world history based on what? Sacred honor, self-governance, limited ambition, the kind of things that make for freedom. Oh, oh, but you know what? Let's just keep screwing people's heads up and scaring the snot out of them. Oh, we're going to have a default. The country's going to collapse. It's such a bunch of bullshit. I'm, this pisses me off. I want to pick on a few more words from these people. Free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. Free and fair elections. There's another one. There's still elections, but the machinery's gotten a little gummed up. I don't want to get into whether or not there's uh, servers on Mars. That's not my line of country. But to say that there hasn't been a concerted effort to use lawfare to change election rules in this country is preposterous. And I'm going to tell you what's funny about this. The same people who, I don't know, eight months ago were telling me never mentioned that uh, elections uh, have a problem, they're out now in the Republican Party talking about ballot harvesting. Hey, you know what? The bar door's got to swing both ways. So you can't say that there's no problems and then go pursue the same strategies as your opponents. You know, we don't have a lot of, um, how should we say it? There's not a lot of honesty going up and down the line here. That's why we're talking about truth so often. Here's another problem. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. You know, when they talk about the government's expenses, they call them outlays. Outlays. What's an outlay? It's the act of expending. They take it back because, you know, when you spend, when you put your hand in your pocket and you pull out your money and you put some money out, that's an expense, right? Why not just call it an expense? Why is it an outlay? It's an expense. We're spending money. It's going out. And what is income? It's revenue. 
They don't call it income because they want your brain to get a little bit froze up here as an American citizen. But let me tell you, our government, it's just like your household finances. It's just like your household finances. You have your income and you have your expenses, but they don't like to use those words because you might figure out that our expenses are a lot higher than our income. And they want you to believe that that can go on forever. And that's BS. So every time we come up on this debt ceiling deal, we try, we try to deal with it, and they start screaming default like Chicken Little because they want to freeze you. They want you to think, oh, if you back these crazy, you know, right-wing people that think that income and expenses should be balanced, hey, you must be a white supremacist. In fact, you're a Nazi. Isn't that interesting? They start labeling people. They get that big brush out there. When in reality, we got a small group, maybe 25% of the country, that hasn't lost its mind. The rest of these people, they're in a cult, okay? I'm going to tell and they tell, and they tell all their people that I'm in a cult. But I'm not in a cult, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm continuously going over my thinking to make sure I'm not making an error. I don't even trust myself, except on one thing. I know who my king is. I don't question that. That's called having the faith of a grain of a mustard seed. That part I got down. I'm working on it every day. The only reason I fall short is because I'm a human being and I fall short. But I'm working on it. I'm working on it every day. I know when I screw up and I try to self-correct. And it's tough to self-correct for me. Maybe not for you. I hope you surpass me. But I'm working on it every day, having my faith made whole and praying that well, thanking God that well-being is restored. Thanking God for my own health. I thank God for my own health. I just start there. Thank you for my own health and well-being, Father. You know, here's something you can do. It's a little bit crude. But if you ever get on the wrong side of this one, you'll know why it's important. You know, we have bodily functions. Do you thank God when they work? I do. You want to know why? I know what happens when they don't work. And that's called bad day at Black Rock. So every time it works, every day it works, that's a good day. You want to talk about what's important? That's important. That's important. Thanking God for, for, for the things we take for granted because, hey, when they don't work, you know how serious and important it is. But there's all kinds of words that have been hijacked, like default. Equity is another one. Here's another word, equity. Let's just go about the whole project of the Democrat. What did their whole, the whole project from the United Nations down to your local Democrat representative in your backyard on the city council in your town? They're in lockstep on three issues. Number one, environmentalism. Number two, social equity. And number three, democracy. And what we're going to have to do in the Republican Party, the new party. We're part of the new party. Not the old party that was called by this, standing around with their mouth open going, oh, low taxes, we want low taxes. Because, see, what they're really seeing is they're materialists. They're this, you know, the whole scam of the Democrat is to appear spiritual when, in fact, they're material. And the whole shortcoming and failure of the Republican is all they do is talk about materialism when, in fact, it's a spiritual idea. If we can get right here at the root causes, we'll be ready to start working on messaging. 
the Democrat. What does the Democrat do? The Democrat. Environmentalism. I love the earth so much, I hate the people. Is that going to be a hard one to really drive home? Look around us. They're limiting our speech for the environment. They're limiting our speech to advance a narrative about, you know, medical techniques that are killing people. Hey, we love the environment so much we hate the people. All right, that one's handled. We got to refine it a little bit, but that's what it is. How hard is it to overcome a bullshit story like that? Let's try the next one. Social equity. We're all the same. Oh, really? When's the last time you were in a locker room? We're not the same. We're different. We're snowflakes. We have to have the same set of rules for all of us. And I understand there's an argument about social equity and writing past inequalities. But freedom, the ability to be creative, oh, we're not going to give that up. We're just not because we believe in God. And that's what they're really working on by saying we're all the same. They're precluding miracles. We've got to get our way through this. Most people don't want to be the same as everybody else. You know, that's a lot to do with our sexual politics. You know, traditionally, like for the last forever, males competed for the affection of females for the procreation of the species. Hey, you know what? They've turned that on their head now, right? Like a million years of evolution. And they're the evolutionists. Come on. The bullshit here is so deep. We need to start picking it apart because, you know, it falls apart. When things are lies, even if they pour tremendous media into it, you know, because that's what Grobel said. Just tell a lie often enough and people believe it. Like William Casey, 1981, director of our CIA. He was a Nazi. Oh, you don't like that? Mr. History doesn't matter? You don't like it. He must be a Nazi because he and Goebbels said the exact same thing. And what did he say? We'll know our information program is a success when everything the American people believe is a lie. I'm trying not to swear. This is the Professor Penn podcast. But you can imagine what I'm thinking when a Nazi is in charge of the CIA. Oh, too far, right? I'm too far. You know what? They're labeling me a white supremacist, and I'm Jewish. What a joke. Come on. As long as we're throwing labels around. But there is no doubt that his basic philosophical position of bullshit in the American people was exactly the same with Joseph Goebbels. So I don't know if they both had swastikas in their, in their sock drawers, but their ideas were very similar. What's more important, the swastika in your, in your sock drawer or the ideas that you live your life by? Your habits become your character, and your character is your destiny. And look at where we are, state media versus truth media. This is truth media you're watching, truth media that's supported by the patriot economy. Truth media plus the truth media plus the patriot economy equals freedom. It's an equation. We tell the truth and we support the people that are supporting the people that are telling the truth and we're going to have freedom. If you want freedom, you know exactly what to do. Tell the truth, spend your money wisely and we're free. It's very simple. We can beat these people. We just have to make it simple because you know I'm not too smart and I got to make it simple for myself. If something is easy to explain, you start to understand it. Like environmentalism, 
They love the earth so much they destroy pieces of timeless art. They hate creativity. They hate humans, but they love the earth. Who are these assholes? Very simple, right? If you're watching me and you're an environmentalist and you love the earth more than you love people, what's the point of this place? Salamanders? If you think so, yourself. Go first. Show the way. I mean, if people are really screwing the planet up, I'll respect you. Jump off a bridge, okay? Leave a note that says, I'm destroying the earth with my pollution. I'm killing myself. But don't kill me or my kids, because I love the people. I love the people. I love the well-being of the people. So what I'm really trying to do is convince you it's about human well-being, and that involves the earth. But don't hate the people to save the earth. We're in a system here. It's a biological system. Social equity. Equity means the value of what I create, not that everything's the same. There's a hijacked word to the max. Hijacked and the, and the granddaddy of them all. Democracy. Remember the Democrat? Social equity, environmentalism, and democracy. That's their pitch, right? Democracy. Yes, we're going to defend our democracy all over the world. Democratic values. Human rights from an empire with 350 golf courses all around the world, an empire. How can you have democracy when you have an empire? Those two things don't go together. They're like oil and water. They separate. One wins and the other one loses. Right there, we've destroyed the entire Democrat Party plank. They don't have anything. Okay, people are talking to me. What's the message? Honesty. Truthfulness. When we start to be truthful, hey, cuts through butter like a hot knife. We'll keep talking on it. I can get better at it. Now, I want to get back to this Congressman Emmer, okay? Please, before we get to Vladimir Putin and all this great drama, I want to talk a little bit about Congressman Emmer. Because, as you know, I put out the piece, Don't Lie to Me. My little local political world here went haywire. I went to see the congressman, I listened to him, and I said, this guy is so good, he confused me. And that's good, because, you know, I, but, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I have to comment on this, and I think I'm going to comment on it when I go, um, host, please call me crazy, because Royce is playing in the big three. I get to do his show again today. And Royce and I were talking, and this is just show you how, what a simpleton I am. He got mad at me. He keeps saying, you keep saying it's uh, not personal, it's just business. And I said, that's how I feel about it. And he said, well, that means there's no moral imperative. In, you know, it's, it's, it, it, there's, it, it's not personal, it's just business. There's no morality. And I thought about it. I go, you're absolutely right. I never thought of it that way. And I'll tell you why. Because in business, I'm completely moral. I'm always doing the right thing. I always think of the other person. I'm honest. I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't lie. I'm even honest with my bank. They can't believe it because they're my partner. I never realized when I say this is not personal, it's just business, that I was talking about evacuating morality from the situation. I was thinking about it completely from the other side, that I'm completely moral in business. It's not personal. I don't have any animosity to you. It's business. It's completely rational, and it's good. That just tells you what a dummy I am, okay? That's what a dummy I am. 
What I'm saying is I listen to people and I believe them because I have a heart like a little child. Where did you hear that one? Be like a little child. I'm actually that way. I got people in my life that are close to me, that I love, that think I'm stupid because I trust people. I do. I just do. Like I trusted Representative Emmer, Congressman Emmer, and I listened to him, and he told me a story. And you know what? We went over the story many times, but I've had some time to think about it. Tanner, can you put up this picture of total outlays, which is right off a government website. You can go find it yourself. This is the U.S. government putting this stuff. This is from the government, okay? And if you look right there at the top, it says discretionary $1.7 trillion in the fine print there. Non-defense is $910 billion and defense is $751 billion. And it says our total outlays, which is another. Remember we were saying that's kind of a BS story? Our total expenses in 2022, this is the 2022 budget last year, $6.3 trillion. $6.3 trillion. Wow, $6.3 trillion. $6.3 trillion. Shit, we're getting up close to Mars with them $100 bills back-to-back. Back. That's a lot of, of piscinas. But if, if, you, if you go and look at this bill that uh, the congressman was touting, he made a big deal when I met him that they've restored the budgetary process that they're going to have, you know, these these bills are going to be, uh, have to be, uh, uh, how do we say this? I'm going to read it to you. The president, this is right out of the, this is, this is, I didn't make this up. You can go find this from a government website. The president submits a budget to Congress for the federal government every fiscal year. Congress must then pass appropriation bills to provide money to carry out the government programs for that year. Appropriation bills are usually divided up by type and into 13 separate bills, agriculture, commerce, justice, state, defense, District of Columbia, energy and water, foreign operations, and blah, blah, blah. They have to pass 12 bills. And uh, Congressman Emmer said they hadn't done this since 1994. And he said everything's about this appropriation process. And if it doesn't work, there's automatic sequestration. We're at the 2022 level where the gov they're working off 2022. That's their baseline, their baseline projection. $6.3 trillion in expenses. And if they can't pass these bills, so this is what Emmer was talking about, what a great process this was and how they're going to hold the guard. This whole thing, the whole bill was a giant scam. And I'm going to tell you why. We had, we, that would be we the people, we had a moment where we could arrest this grotesque borrowing. We're in the hole for $32 trillion right now. We run up the bill another $2 trillion this year. They just didn't record it yet because we didn't reach the end of the fiscal period, which is at the end of September, the fiscal year. We're going to find out at the end of the fiscal year we overspent the income by another $2 trillion. Hey, it's just $2 trillion. Like if you put $100 bills on top of each other, it'd go up 1,200 miles. That's a long way, okay? That's a lot of $100 bills. If the government cannot pass an appropriation process, they can't get these bills, 
because they can always say we're going to do another omnibus and stick them all together. But let's say they can't do it. It breaks down. There's an automatic sequestration of 1% cuts on discretionary income, uh, discretionary spending. But it holds out defense. Defense gets an increase regardless because what does the uni party agree on? Spend the money on defense. So at the 2022 level, the congressman has said in the fine print that if they can't reach agreement on the bills that get passed, there's a 1% sequestration. It's $900 million on $6.3 trillion. That would be called de minimis. In other words, this whole budgetary drama is a giant scam meant to confuse me. And I say me because they had me. But I'm here to tell you, it took me a few weeks to figure it out. If they don't pass these bills, there's what's called a continuing funding resolution. They can't stop the government again. And on January 1st, 2025, whatever the bill gets run up to, it's all okay, which is going to be another $4 trillion. We're going to get up to about $35 trillion bucks. We're bust. We're bust, 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 broke, broke, broke. Why? Tanner, let's put up the revenues. The revenues. Now, the revenues are not revenues. They're income. This is our income right here. It's $4.9 trillion. $4.9 trillion, and our expenses is $6.3 trillion. And we just passed a bill to allow this to continue. Now, this is not well-being. This is anti-well-being. This is called creating a tremendous debt. That debt, as in D-E-B-T, a debt that makes us into debt slaves. Remember that business model? Slavery, drugs, piracy. This is slave, slave, slave. Debt slave. I am a debt slave. We are debt slaves. And they're making it worse. You know what we need is equity. Not social equity. That's another scam. We need to be taking money in and saving it as a country, like the Chinese. The Chinese are sitting on so much cash, they don't know what to do with it. And they don't take us seriously. And I said this, and I said this in a previous podcast. I said, Congressman Emmer, you've just spoke eloquently about the threat China poses to us. You want to scare these people? Balance the budget. They'll shit their pants because they don't think we're serious. They don't think we're serious. And there's going to be people in this audience. They may have a good point. They may think this debt is intentional, aimed at destroying the currency and ushering in central bank digital currencies. And I'm not going to argue with you. That's a podcast for a different day. CBDC. To be or not to be. I'll tell you how to handle this one. Cut your credit cards up and start carrying cash. Start to say, I love cash. Thank you, God, for giving me cash. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the cash in my pocket. And let's hang on to that cash. You know what they're doing is they're selling you convenience. In fact, if you go to the Federal Register and read President Biden's executive book, it's federalregister.gov. That's federalregister.gov. If you want to read 
everything your government does every day. Go to federalregister.gov. That's federalregister.gov. And you can look up anything in there, and you can see how your government has fenced central bank digital currencies. Can you guess what it is? Let me just take a minute. I want you to guess. How could they fence this? Okay, social equity. It's meant to redress the inequities of the banking system, which discriminates against uh, minorities. Am I supposed to be stupid? Oh, yes, I am. They think I'm stupid. They think you're stupid. Stupid. Because what? Because they got a degree from Columbia University, a Ph.D. in economics. Or a Ph.D. in whatever. And let me tell you, these people are not as smart as they think they are. And I'll tell you how to defeat them. Cut up your credit cards and pay cash for everything. Write checks. Quit using that online service where all you have to do is point and click and the money changes hands. Because that's digital money. They're leading us into a killing zone through convenience and protestations that the banking system is not equitable. You know what's equitable is how much money you got in your pocket. Quit using the credit cards and start writing checks and carrying cash. And if you do that, all their plans will get gummed up. But, you know, they think you're stupid. So they're just depending on you to continue to point and click for convenience sake. You know what? Life's not convenient. It's messy and it's hard work. Knock and you'll be answered. Knock. You must knock. You must ask. You must ask. You're still supposed to ask. You got to ask. You want to get over your anxiety? You want to get over whatever? You have to ask to be admitted to the school, to faith. You have to have the faith of a mustard seed. You got to believe that believing means something, and that's called a faith muscle, and that takes some time. God's very gentle about that. He builds up that faith muscle step by step, and pretty soon you're going to look around, and almost everything can seem to be miraculous, which we're going to get into here shortly when we start talking about this Russia drama. But we need to, as an American people, understand that we're being scammed. Congressman Emmer's job, someone told me, is to scam me. I don't like that. Please, if you're the House Majority Whip, just tell the truth. Tell the truth. But here's what he really said. He said that we got a new budgetary process, and they're going to hold the, 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 the process accountable. They can't. They don't have the juice to hold it accountable. The worst thing that they could do is sit down in the center of the road and not let these bills pass, in which case a de minimis, de minimis amount of money De minimis, one of the words you're going to see in the Federal Register. It means insignificant. Doesn't matter. De minimis. A de minimis savings will be realized. I mean, it's so small, it doesn't make any, any difference. Our outlay, our expenditure, our expense is $2 trillion more than our income. And that's just going to continue unabated. Why don't we just say we fold it? Congressman, hey. You're either on the other side, which you may be. We don't know. Time will tell. You may be part of the Uni Party. 
I don't want you to be. I want Congressman Ammer to join the freedom movement of people that love the United States of America, that love the well-being of the people, that thank God for the people's well-being, thank God for the people's healthy finances, thank God for our borders, thank God for all the good things that we need. And let's believe we've received it and we'll have it. You want to fight these people? Let them lie. Let's go to the source of all truth and get some power going here. It's part of what we do. It's not everything that we do. we got to get into the streets and protest these people. But I'm going to just say, for whatever it's worth, we're telling the truth. This is truth media. Let them all lie. The truth's going to cut through it like a hot knife through butter. And here's the truth. A new clip. It's all the same but a little different. Let me say it again. It's all the same but a little different. Let's go through this. You know, Tanner, I'd really appreciate it if you could play 330 of the Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 7, the Leningrad Symphony. Let's listen to this. It's a little musical interlude.
<laughs> and there's a lot of subtext to this. Uh, here we go into the Russia thing. That's, that is Shostakovich Symphony Number no. 7. It's known as the Leningrad Symphony. It's a symphony in C major. Uh, it was composed by Shostakovich in December of 1941. That was during the war, the, big, the last big war. And it was premiered in Leningrad on March 5, 1942. The symphony was first dedicated to Vladimir Lenin, but it was eventually submitted in honor of the besieged city of Leningrad. That's one of the greatest battles in world history. That's where the Russians destroyed the German army that had invaded Russia in Operation Barbarossa. And you notice I'm not saying Soviet Union, because that's another word scam. Cover story. Bullshit story. It was always Russia. And that war was fought inside of Russia, right in the heartland of Russia, and the Russians actually turned the Germans back. And this symphony was performed in Leningrad during the siege on August 9, 1942, and the score was smuggled out of Russia in microfilm and came to New York where it was performed by the New York Philharmonic on July 19, 1942, and it was... Uh, Arturo Toscanini, no, none of you know who he is. I know who he is. He was a very famous conductor, and he conducted New York Philharmonic and the NBC Symphony Orchestra. You know, that became uh, a jazz band during late-night television. It used to be one of the best orchestras in the world. This symphony had incredible psychic significance. Now, I'm just going to cop- comment on a couple of issues here. We've talked about Shostakovich before. He was an incomparable master. He actually ran a follow of the, uh, the Stalinist police and Stalin himself because he was a musician. He was a little bit liberal, and he redeemed himself because he was such a great artist he wanted to get his art out, and he decided, it's very interesting if you read what he wrote, he decided, much like we're going to find out Putin also has decided, that the communist adventure, the Stalinist adventure, it was a detour. And he wasn't going to let it get in his way. He realized it was about the Russian people. And he kept producing art, and he produced this very famous Symphony Number no. 7, which is known as, you know, the Leningrad Symphony, in memory of that incredibly powerful memory that it's timeless. This is, t- But you know what's interesting about this? I'm just going to read this. This is a famous poem in Russia. Who would grasp Russia with the mind? For her, no yardstick was created. Her soul is of a special kind, by faith alone appreciated. It's much better in the native Russian. You know, that was the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra under Michael Sanderling. I want you to think about this. These Russians are so powerful that they actually subdued the Germans to the point where the very symphony that memorializes their destruction, they're planted in Berlin, and the, Berlin, the Berliners are clapping like seals. That is power.
That's cultural power. And that's what we're facing here with the Russians. These people are deep. Who would grasp Russia with the mind? In other words, if you have a Ph.D. from Columbia University, Anthony Blinken, wink and blinking and not, and you're dealing with the Russians, oh, you're a little overmatched. Because for her, no yardstick was created. Her soul is of a special kind, by faith alone appreciated. And that's where we have to go if we want to understand what's going on in Russia. We can't understand this with our mind. But here's a little something that you can take to the bank. These people beat the Germans so bad that they're playing the very music that memorializes their defeat and they're clapping like seals to it. That is total domination. They have totally dominated these people. We misperceive and underestimate the Russians at a profound level, just like we misperceive and underestimate the Chinese. We need to go back in the barrel and cure a little bit more before we deal with these people, find our faith. Oh, that might be why I'm asking you to pray. Because these people are in a secret society, and we are in Instagram watching shorts. <laughs> That's called going to a gunfight with a pocket knife. Who would grasp Russia with the mind? For her, no yardstick was created. Her soul is of a special kind, by faith alone appreciated. Tanner, could we just play Vladimir Putin's speech? I want to give a little context. You know, we had a, a uh, revolt. There was a coup, a palace coup in Russia this weekend. If you don't know it, well, I'm going to say since John Kennedy was assassinated, to me, this is the most noteworthy thing that's happened since Kennedy had his brains blown out. So from my perspective, this is a pretty big deal. And in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, when Prigozhin's Wagner Group was on the road to Moscow to overthrow Putin, Putin went on state television, and here's what he had to say. Could you please play this? За наш суверенитет и независимость, за право быть и оставаться Россией, государством с тысячелетней историей. Эта битва, когда решается судьба нашего народа, требует единения всех сил, единства, консолидации и ответственности, когда в сторону должно быть отброшено все, что ослабляет нас. Любые распри, которыми могут воспользоваться и пользуются наши внешние враги, чтобы подорвать нас изнутри. Действия, которые раскалывают наше единство, это, по сути, отступничество от своего народа, от боевых товарищей, которые сражаются сейчас на фронте. Это удар в спину нашей стране и нашему народу. Защитим и наш народ, и нашу государственность от любых угроз. В том числе от внутреннего предательства. А то, с чем мы столкнулись, это именно предательство. Непомерные амбиции и личные интересы привели к измене. К измене и своей стране, и своему народу, и тому делу, за которое бок о бок с другими нашими частями и подразделениями сражались и погибали бойцы и командиры группы «Вагнер». Герои, которые освобождали Солидар и Артемовск, города и поселки Донбасса. Сражались и отдавали свои жизни за Новороссию, за единство русского мира. Их имя и славу 
тоже предали те, кто пытается организовать мятеж, толкает страну к анархии и братоубийству. Любая внутренняя смута – смертельная угроза для нашей государственности, для нас, как нации. Это удар по России, по нашему народу. И наши действия по защите Отечества от такой угрозы будут жесткие. Все, кто сознательно встал на путь предательства, кто готовил вооруженный мятеж, встал на путь шантажа и террористических методов, понесут неименуемое наказание. Ответят и перед законом, и перед нашим народом. Дополнительные меры антитеррористического характера вводятся сейчас в Москве, Московской области, ряде других регионов. Будут также предприняты решительные действия по стабилизации ситуации в Ростове-на-Дону. Она остается сложной. Фактически заблокирована работа органов гражданского и военного управления. Как президент России и верховный главнокомандующий, как гражданин России сделаю все, чтобы отстоять страну, защитить конституционный строй, жизни и безопасности, свободу граждан. Тот, кто организовал и готовил военный мятеж, кто поднял оружие на боевых товарищей, предали Россию и ответят за это. А тех, кого пытаются втянуть в это преступление, призываю не совершать роковую и трагическую, неповторимую ошибку. Сделать единственно правильный выбор – прекратить участие в преступных действиях. Let's set the scene here. This is the president of your country coming on national television in the middle of a coup when all the chips are up on the bar. He could have been dead a couple hours later, and he knew it. This was not a kidding around thing. I know there's lots of theories. Everybody gets to have an opinion. I have an opinion, and my opinion is no more or less valid than anybody else's. But I want to bring out the things that I think are important in the truth media. I like to tell the truth. This guy was standing up there, and he had one chance to make this go right. Now, this is a man who is a martial artist, which right off the bat, I know he's trained in a secret society because there's films of him doing judo, and that's not an easy thing to learn. I've done it. I know how hard it is. If you're a judoka, you're a tough son of a bitch. He plays the piano pretty well. I play the piano pretty well. It takes a lot of work. It's a secret society to learn how to play a musical instrument. Oh, he started out as an officer of the KGB. That'd be their CIA. He was a secret agent man. That means he's trained in all the deadly arts. You can't get any more secret society training than KGB. What I'm trying to bring out is, This is a very exceptional human being, a very highly trained human being, who was confronted with one of the greatest threats to his rule and to his life that he'd ever experienced. Everything was on the bar. And you know, I like to say, if you want to see the snakes, beat the grass. So the grass was beaten, and all the snakes were moving around. And it was very easy to see what was, it was interesting. I called up a Russian friend of mine. Oh. That'd be that same young man, whose name we don't mention, who gave that great speech to the Republican Party. Spoke to him in Russian, and I said, you know, 
I would expect you to be able to feel this thing, and they'll tell me everything there is to know about politics in Russia. Kind of looked at me like I was goofy. But I was giving him an opportunity to do what I did anyhow. Because when it moves like this, you can feel everything. Just like right after the last presidential election, when darkness descended on America, you could feel all the darkness. You had to have those skills. It might motivate you to get into politics and thank God for the light he sends to this earth. I want to give you a couple high points because this speech is one of the most important speeches in world history because Putin did something that is really noteworthy. First of all, he said, Today, Russia is fighting fiercely for its future, repelling the aggression of neo-Nazis and their handlers, that'd be we the people, directed against us as the whole military, economic, and information machines of the West. That's from their street corner what they're seeing. Isn't it great when they tell us what they see? We don't have to make it up. He's telling it like it is for him. He's fighting fiercely for the future of his people. It's an existential crisis. We fight for the lives and security of our people, for our sovereignty and independence, for the right to remain Russia, a state with a thousand-year history. This is a big deal. Look what's happening in our own society. We're in the middle of a communist takeover, and history is getting wiped out. Our founding fathers are all racists and slave owners. Hey, what it is to be a man? You're not a man. There's no, no masculinity. In fact, if you're a man, you can have a baby. I mean, they're just changing everything wholesale to make a huge break with the past because that past includes certain truths like hierarchies of skills, right? Like humans come before salamanders, truth, things like that. They have to wipe that out. They do it through education. When communists take over, they destroy the historical past of the people. Like Mr. History doesn't matter. I bet he doesn't know he's a useful idiot. He's actually a communist. Maybe he knows he's a communist and just acts like he's a Republican. That's possible. You know, enemies foreign and domestic. Oh, I bet he doesn't like to hear that. But one must ask, truth commissions, explain to us why you walk around and tell the people history doesn't matter. Because what Putin is doing here in this speech is he's acknowledging a thousand-year history for Russia before the communist revolution in 1917. He's embracing the Christian root of the modern Russian Federation. That's a big deal in a communist country where there is no God. He's wiping that, and he's going to go farther, as we're going to see. The actions splitting our unity are a betrayal of the people. It was such a blow that was dwelt. Let me try this again. Thus, the actions splitting our unity are a betrayal of our people, of our brothers in combat who fight now at the front line. It's a stab in the back of our country and our people. It was such a blow that was dealt to Russia in 1917 when the country was fighting in World War I, but its victory was stolen. He's repudiating the Russian Revolution, the Communist Bolshevik Revolution. He's repudiating it. This is a man who came up in the KGB, spent most of his life, or a big part of his life, 
living in a communist country, Russia, the Soviet Union, and he's repudiating the entire deal. This is big. He's embracing the Christian past of Russia. Hmm. I wonder what that means to the globalists in the West that are decadents, that don't believe in Christ and don't believe in God. And here comes this tower. Oh, he's an expansionist. He's a terrible person. Yet every war is fought inside Russia's borders. But he's the expansionist. I don't know. 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 I can't get it through my mind. I have to get it through faith, understanding these people. Russians were killing Russians, brothers killing brothers. The beneficiaries of that were various political chevaliers, that means knights of war, you know, like armored knights, of chevaliers of fortune and foreign powers who divided the country and tore it into parts. Remember that Russia was occupied by 700,000 foreign troops at the time of the Bolshevik Revolution? They were occupied yet again. We will not let this happen again. We will protect our people and state from any threats, including internal betrayal. That's what we're facing. It's exactly a betrayal. Big ambitions and personal interests led to a treason. Betrayal of one's own country and people and of the cause of the fighters of Wagner that were dying alongside our soldiers. Okay, that's why we started out with Ernst Rome. Because we've been through this before. Ernst Rome was the leader of the brown shirts. And he became so powerful as the leader that Hitler had to clip him out because he was a threat to his rule. Well, we've had this war now in the Ukraine quite a long time. And we're starting to learn the names of these leaders like Prigozhin, Shoigu, Gerasimov. We would never know these people's names. But in a war, generals become famous. Like we knew Schwarzkopf in Desert Storm 1. General Flynn. Why do we know General Flynn? Because he was a general during the Obama administration when the country was at war. He became notorious and powerful. They had to take him down. Obama took down General Flynn. They took down a lot of generals. Because when generals get powerful, like MacArthur, like Patton, a lot of people think, a lot of people think Patton was killed because of the views that he held about the Russians. When generals become popular, they get beat down by civilian or traditional authorities. We're watching it happen right here. So what, what do we know happened? We know, we know that the Russian military decided to absorb Wagner into its ranks because Wagner was getting to be too powerful. He was a threat to the power establishment of the Ministry of Defense. Actually, Wagner was part of the Ministry of Defense. The GRU, that's uh, Russian Military Intelligence, that was the backers of Wagner. And then you had the FSB and the generals. You know, they got their own internal politics there. And in the middle of it sat Putin. You know, like the center of the scales. Balancing the various forces of the government. Remember, they don't have the kind of deep institutional traditions that we have here in the United States. Russia's kind of a lean startup. You know, our military-industrial complex really got going after 45, and so did the Chinese after 49. We have mature, ripe, and large bureaucracies. Millions and millions of people. It's very inefficient. The Russians are a lean startup. They got a big boss, and it doesn't really matter 
how much money they're taking in relative to the Chinese and Americans because the money goes right where it belongs, right into weapons development and weapons procurement. They're not carrying half their budget for pensions and payoffs like the Chinese and the Americans are. You know, we've got to look at things a little bit more critically, not the way uh, the security state fences it out, or state media. There's truth media, and then there's the state media. We know that the Russian military was going to absorb Wagner. We know Prigozhin didn't want to lose his pet power base. We know that Prigozhin was deeply critical, deeply critical of Putin. He didn't, con- you know, he didn't, he didn't attack Putin directly because, hey, that's dangerous. But he attacked Shoigu and Gerasimov because what the Russian policy is is to go to the line of conflict around Bakhmut, control the Donbass, and wait for the re- world to figure out that the Ukrainians have lost, and then have a negotiated settlement. Because I've kept saying that if the Russians win, it's a lose-lose, and if the West wins, it's a lose-lose. And what Putin is really trying to do is avoid a nuclear war. That's what he's doing. And Prigozhin was a hardliner, a hardliner that wants to use Russian military force to destroy the Ukrainians. Hey, does that make Putin a good guy? You're only good or bad by comparison. Putin wants a settlement. We don't have to wonder if he wants a settlement. He's written it down. You can go online and you can read about him. I'm just not going to have the time to do it. But uh, Putin is on record saying that he wants to go back to the Istanbul Agreement, which would allow there to be a peaceful settlement of this fight without the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, this is just incredible. He's just waiting for the West. He even says, I mean, we're going to have to go over it again and again. He even says he's waiting for the West. He's waiting for the West to decide that it wants a settlement. So we have Putin looking for a settlement with the West. Prigozhin, a hardliner, very frustrated. And he was going to really stage a coup. And what happened? Putin went on television with a speech that was so moving that Prigozhin's fighters, the Wagner Group, mostly laid down their arms and said, we're not going to do this. We're thrown in with Putin. So Prigozhin, let's forget about all the subtext and all the different possibilities down the rabbit hole. Just what we know for sure. Prigozhin lost his power base, and he cut a deal and ran away. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. We just don't have time to get into all the intricacies of it. But all the chips were on the bar. And what really mattered to me was Putin repudiated the communist period going back to 1917. He aligned Russia with a thousand-year history of Christianity. He aligned Russia with faith and family and country and tradition. And that is incredible. And I'm not saying I'm a Putin guy. I'm just saying let's look at what's going on here in the world. He's putting his faith in God. And, you know, he survived this. So something's going on here. Because, boy, he was in a spot. And in the course of one day, he survived. 
Prigozhin's gone. Karasimov and Shoigu are probably going to be gone. He's cleaning the boards and starting over. Maybe. Maybe he'll be killed this afternoon. We don't know. But that speech, the one thing I want to share with you is he's made a fresh start for the Russian people. He's divorced them from communism and from Stalinism. And that really is noteworthy. It's something that we, the people, need to pay attention to because what he's embracing is a path towards human well-being and human freedom. And that's something we got to watch very carefully. So let's go out with a little outtake from Dr. Strangelove. What happens when materialism reigns? when we give up our faith in God and believe in science. Tanner, let's go out with General Buck Turgeson, and I'll see you soon again. Thank you for joining. Mr. President, there are one or two points I'd like to make, if I may. Go ahead, General. One, our hopes for recalling the 843rd bomb wing are quickly being reduced to a very low order of probability. Two. In less than 15 minutes from now, the Ruskies will be making radar contact with the planes. Three, when they do, they are going to go absolutely ape, and they're going to strike back with everything they got. Four, if prior to this time we have done nothing further to suppress their retaliatory capabilities, we will suffer virtual annihilation. Now, five, if, on the other hand, we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Hell, we got a five-to-one missile superiority as it is. We could easily assign three missiles to every target and still have a very effective reserve force for any other contingency. Six, an unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. General, it is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well, Mr. President, I would, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> that was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing, but it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. Mr. President, they have the ambassador waiting upstairs. Oh, good. Any difficulty? They say he's having a fit about that squad of MPs. Yes, well, that can't be helped. Have him brought down here straight away. Yes, sir. Is, it, is that the Russian ambassador you're talking about? Yes, it is, General. Uh, am I to understand the Russian ambassador is to be admitted to entrance to the, the war room? 
That is correct. He is here on my orders. I, I, I don't know exactly how to put this, sir, but are you aware of what a serious breach of security that would be? I mean, you'll see everything. You'll you, you see the big board. That is precisely the idea, General. That is precisely the idea. Staines, get Premier Kissoff on the hotline. 